Well, good morning, church. This is a unique day for me, something I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Most of you know this is the last Sunday that I'm going to be here for the next three months as I get ready to leave on my sabbatical. And so as I was preparing for today, uh, I wanted to communicate to you what I've been really chewing on, what I've been processing, praying through over the last 18 months in preparation for this season of rest. Psalm 19 has been the theme psalm of my sabbatical preparation, and I want to walk you through that this morning and talk about rest, renewal, and revival in the Lord. That's my hope for this season for myself, but not just for myself. It's a hope that I've had for you, that this would be a summer that we would all begin to experience a, a, a new season of rest in Christ and the renewal, the revival, uh, the new vision that that kind of rest can bring for our church, for our community, and ultimately for the glory of God. Now, I know that this has been a week in which the idea of rest feels almost laughable. Uh, why talk about rest in a, not only a week like this, but a year like this? How could we possibly rest in 2020? You know, for the last two and a half months now, all we've heard on the news is talk about the coronavirus, a global pandemic, a lockdown, economic shutdowns, layoffs, firings, health problems, people getting sick, people passing away. And all of those things, all of those things have touched our church particularly. So how do we talk about rest in a season like that? And of course, this has been a week of anything but rest all around us. As I'm standing here in front of this camera tonight, it's actually Friday night. And I know that even as I speak, just a few minutes from here, downtown there are hundreds, if not thousands, of angry protesters who are crying out for justice tonight after the egregious and wicked murder of George Floyd up in Minneapolis. And of course, that just on the heels a few weeks ago of the, the wicked murder of Ahmaud Arbery down in Georgia. It seems like the thing that surrounds us right now is unrest. So how could we talk about rest at a time like this? Well, I would say this. It's times like these that remind us just how necessary it is for us to learn what it means to rest in Christ. Resting in Christ is not about passivity. It's not about inactivity. It's about finding balance and renewal and revival in him, even in the midst of a world that is not at rest. That's one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. One of the real promises that we have in Christ is that we can come to him and find rest. So let me share a little bit with you tonight from Psalm 19. It was just read for us what it is that I've been processing. And uh, there's three categories to this psalm that we're going to look at. King David wrote this psalm. Three ways in which I think in his quest 
for rest and revival and renewal, he was finding connection points with God. He was finding ways to see that renewal really transform his heart and ultimately his life. The first way is this. It's to see the glory of God in creation. That's the first thing we see David doing here in the first part of this psalm, Psalm 19. He's looking up. And so I want us to consider that as our first point this morning. It's to, it's to seek the glory of God in creation by slowing down and looking up. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 19. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, there's a saying that comes to mind as I consider sabbatical rest, and it's, it's this. Stop and smell the roses. <laughs> Stop and smell the roses. It's, a, it's an old saying that we've all heard, and it's a reminder to do what? To slow down? It's a reminder to notice the details, to notice the beauty around you. You know, I think apart from maybe artists and poets, most of us aren't real good at that. I say that thinking about people in sort of the middle stages of life. Because actually, if you think about children, they're pretty good at noticing the details, right? They'll stop and smell a flower. Elderly folks, by God's grace, I think at the end of their lives, they sort of figure this principle out as well, right? But it's those of us in the middle parts of life that just don't do this enough in our day-to-day lives, And that's where David is at, that stage of life. And yet here in this psalm, he's stopping and he's looking up and noticing the sky. He's probably looking up into the night sky here. And that is a practice that I really want to recapture this summer. To just stop and look. Stop and notice the beauty around me with the the goal of considering the glory of God. This frequent failure of ours to slow down and to look up is detrimental to our health. It's detrimental to our spiritual health, first and foremost. It's, it's detrimental to our mental health. Why? Because it's a key way in which we can connect with God. Theologians call this general revelation, seeing the revelation of God in general ways that's available to everybody. It's in nature in which God speaks to us in a very general, but but a very clear way, right? The heavens declare his glory. That's what David is saying in this psalm. And connecting with God in nature is is a big reason why I feel that it's so important for me to get out of the city. That's part of what I'll be doing this summer. It's just getting away from the city. You know why? It's, it's hard to see the night sky in the city, isn't it? You know that, right? In the midst of this concrete jungle that we live in in Chicago, it's, it's just difficult to see any kind of nature at all. But I want you to know it's still possible, right? You don't have to get out of the city entirely in order to connect with God like this. And I want to encourage you, even as maybe many of you, if not most of you, aren't going to be able to get away like, like I will be able to, I want to encourage you to just do what you can to slow down and look up. 
There's a really good article published on Desiring God this week. It was written by a guy named John Bloom. And in it, he's doing this. He's, he's considering the glory of God in the heavens. And in that article, he quotes from David Blattner's book called Spectrums, subtitled, Our Mind-Boggling Universe from Infinitesimal to Infinity. That's a great title. I want you to listen to what Blattner says about our night sky. He says, if our solar system were the size of a grain of salt, the Milky Way galaxy would be about the length of a football field. That milky stripe that we can see on a clear, dark night is a dense collection of stars in one of the Milky Way's spiral arms. And it's about 1,000 light years thick. What makes these starry arms and we with them uh, oh, excuse me, let me quote that. He says, and what these starry arms and we with them are spiraling around, listen to this, is a supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A, located about 27,000 light years from us. And scientists estimate that our galaxy is about 100,000 light years wide. Looking at the naked sky with the naked eye as King David did, we can see a few thousand stars at most. But look through the telescope. Do the math and you'll find there are somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. And that's just our galaxy. Our neighboring galaxy, Andromeda, appears to contain a trillion or more stars. And Bloom says that's not even a chip on the tip of the cosmic iceberg. A recent estimate of the total number of galaxies in the universe is 150 to 200 billion. But the Hubble telescope is indicating that the real number might even be 10 times that amount. And when it comes to the total number of stars, we really don't know. One estimate is around one septillion. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. And all this inhabits a universe that has an estimated radius of about 46 billion light years. All this information doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what we as human beings collectively now know. And scientists say that what we now know barely scratches the surface of all that we don't know yet. Now, I love hearing stuff like that. I get really excited about that kind of information about the, 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 the infinitude of our galaxy. I wonder if you do too. We gotta slow down we got to look up. That's something that I, I really am setting my sights on doing this summer. I'm going to be going out to the beach. That's, a, that's a, sort of a, a happy place for me. But one of the reasons why is because it's a place in which I can just see vastness. It reminds me of the bigness of God. It reminds me of the, the smallness of myself even. But the power and the majesty and the creativity and the beauty of this God who created a universe that's 46 billion light years long. 
That beach that I'll be sitting at is just a, a speck of a speck in comparison to the universe. And I hope to go camping so I can see some of these night skies that I've, I've almost forgotten about living here in the city. But you say, well, what has that got to do with rest? How does that glory, when I can take it in and, and really behold it and ponder it, how does that give me rest? In the same way, I hope that it gave David rest. Just a, a few psalms earlier in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, listen to what he says. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see what David's doing? He's saying, if, if God is this big and awesome and wonderful and I'm so small, how is it that this big and wonderful God not only knows me, cares about me, and it's that thought that drives David to a place of, of sweet comfort, of sweet rest in the knowledge that this God knows my name. How does he care for us? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me when you're in the midst of 2020 and a pandemic, an economic crisis, and gross social injustice around you. Come to me in the midst of this unrest and turmoil in life when your anxieties are ready to boil over, when you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls that's a promise that I hope to not only grab onto but, but grasp grasp and let it renew me this summer. And I'm praying the same for you. Consider, stop, look around. Be reminded of, of who God is. Be reminded of the glory, the weight, the majesty, and the power of this God. And then be reminded, he knows you. And he cares for you. And his promise for you is a promise of rest. That's the first part of the psalm. David talks about the glory of God in creation, and he does that through the first six verses. And then he turns a corner to talk about, secondly, the revival of the soul in God's word. This is about hearing his voice. Resting in God involves looking up, for sure, but it also requires looking down at our Bibles. Psalm 19, verse 7, David says, The law of the Lord, the word of God, is perfect. And then he says this, reviving the soul. 
He's finding rest in the glory of God. He's finding revival for his soul in the word of God. I really appreciate that verse because it tells me that the Christian life is one that is in constant need of revival. You know, even the most spiritually healthy among us have good days and we have hard days. We talk about having joy in Christ and we, we can and we do have joy in Christ, but joy in Christ is not static. And I'm saying that just simply by experience and you know that, it's, it's not static. It, it can fluctuate with real life. Having said that, I would say that I'm, I'm, I think I'm generally joyful in the Lord. I love him. I love my life. I'm happy to be pastoring here at Edgewater. I'm happy to be living in Chicago. I'm happy to be surrounded by my family and friends whom I, I love. But I get tired too. I am tired. Even as I walk with Jesus, I recognize that, that some days with him are sad. Some days I'm depressed. Some days I want to cry. And I know you experience that too. That's normal. But it reminds me, I need renewal. I need revival in my soul. And I need it a lot. And David knew this too. Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm. He uses the same word there as he did in, in this psalm when he talks about the law reviving the soul. He says there, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Same word. He revives my soul by his word. He restores my soul as my shepherd. Our souls need to be restored. And here's the thing. It's not just general revelation that accomplishes this, but it's God's specific revelation that revives the soul. It's hearing him. It's hearing him speak to us. It's his word. We need to hear his voice. We need the Bible for rest and renewal. Listen to what David says of God in verses 7 to 8. He says, God's word makes why is the simple? It rejoices the heart and it enlightens the eyes. That sounds like exactly the kind of renewal that my mind and my heart and my eyes need right now. And I wonder if you could say the same thing. You know, part of stopping to smell the roses is knowing what the roses are, right? What, what are these roses that we're supposed to stop and sniff? And David wants us to know, here's the answer. Is there anything more sweet for my soul than the very words of God? Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. That's what God's word is like to those who taste and see. You know, I'll be honest. I think I need to recapture my love for God's word. That's another big reason why the elders so graciously pushed me, even when I wasn't sure if I should take a sabbatical like this right now. They said, no, we need to invest in you. And, and as I 
gratefully appreciated that, it became clearer to me, I need to recapture my love for God's word. You know, as a pastor, I'm in the word a lot. I'm in the word a lot. I, I read my Bible regularly, but sometimes I think I taste it more like a, a chef who's sort of tasting his dish as he's preparing to serve the meal to others. Just, just taste sometimes, and, and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to eat the meal. I want to eat the meal. I want to just stop like David and taste and say, this is satisfying, this is sweet, this is better than gold. I want to be satisfied. I want to be revived. And so I want to encourage you to do the same. Are, are, you, are you tasting the word of God? And, and if so, are you eating it? Are you enjoying it like a meal? Can you say with David that there's nothing sweeter? I'm, I'm going to guess that many of you, if you're honest with yourselves, would say no. I, I love the Bible. I read the Bible. But I, I don't know that I would say that about the Bible, that I, I desire it more than, than anything. And, and I want that for us because God wants that for us. His word is that for us when we allow it to be. So can I just encourage you, this summer, yes, I know, I, feel, I almost feel guilty. I know I get to get away. I get to sit on a beach. I get to, to grab a, a book, you know, but, but can, I just, can I just encourage you, do something like that for yourself. When this lakefront opens up, get out there. Look at the water. Look at the horizon. Consider the glory of God. Take your Bible with you and say, God, make this a meal for me. Help me to come to it every day like I come to food and make it satisfying to me, God. I, I know that if we, if we pray that prayer and if we hang on to this book, God will meet us there. God will meet us there. And that's what David is saying here about God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives my soul. It makes me wise. It rejoices my heart. It enlightens my eyes because this word endures forever. So we see the glory of God in creation and we find rest. We see the glory of God in his word and we find revival and restoration. And thirdly, then what David does is he turns and he sees this. Here's the third point. The freedom of repentance, unlocking the hidden chambers of my heart. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is an important part of renewal. We've said that resting in the Lord involves looking up at his glory and creation, looking down at our Bibles, and now we're going to see that it also entails looking in, looking into our own hearts. And as I've been considering my own sabbatical rest and planning how I want this psalm to be the theme that guides what I do and how I do it, this, this part of, of, of my sabbatical rest both encourages me because I know I need it, this looking in at my own heart, 
It also scares me for the same reason, because <laughs> I know I need it. I know I need it. The greatest barrier to rest and growth in the Lord is, of course, our sin. Our sin. It's the greatest barrier to rest and growth in the Lord. Now, I'm pretty aware that I'm a sinner. I know I am. We all are. But what's scary to me is that none of us knows just how much of a sinner we really are, just how much sin really entangles our hearts. You know Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know it? You know, one of the reasons we're so unaware of the true conditions of our hearts is because we don't slow down long enough to consider the glory of God in the heavens, right? When I, when I consider his glory, what do I do? I realize how unlike him I am, right? So I don't, I don't slow down long enough to do that, and so I don't know my own heart. And, and also because we don't meditate on his word, Right? Meditation. Uh, this is what he says back in verse 11. Moreover, by them, by your words, your servant is warned. Right? We're instructed by his words. So, so we don't know our own hearts. We don't know our own sin because we don't look up and we don't look down enough. But it leads us to this. There's two kinds of sin. There's two, two ways of sinning that resting in the Lord can, can not only help reveal, but then in turn produce in us a greater rest and renewal and revival. Two kinds, and, and he, he identifies them here. The first one here is hidden faults. Look again at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What does that mean? It doesn't mean hidden from others. He's not talking here about some secret lie or lust or theft that, that he knows, or that, that maybe you know in your own life, that, but that others don't know. That's not what he's talking about. Our errors are often hidden from ourselves. Not necessarily that we don't know what we did, but perhaps we don't feel the sinfulness of it. We just don't see, sometimes, our sin as sin. We're blind to the sinfulness of it. We puff up our own selves. We, we hurt other people. We, we detract from God's glory. And we're often oblivious to it, at least for a while. You know, I remember when Christine and I first got married, we both remarked at the time, the whole, the whole first year of our marriage, that we were, we were surprised by our, our newfound awareness of our selfishness. Maybe some of you who are married know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You, you, you're kind of used to living on your own for a while and doing your own thing. And, and then you, 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 you get married and you, and you move in and you live in the most intimate way with somebody else. Your, your whole task in that relationship is to serve them and love them and give to them. And you realize, man, I'm terrible at that. I'm terrible at it, Right? Because you end up bickering and you end up kind of getting annoyed by all those little things that have pressed against all the, the comforts that you've grown accustomed to and you realize, man, I am selfish. Now here's the thing about that. It's not that we were more selfish all of a sudden just because we got married. 
We didn't become more selfish than we were before. What happened? We just became more aware of what we'd always been, right? And so that, that's kind of what David is asking. God, there, are there things in my life that I'm just not aware of, that I've just been? Help me to see it. Help me to see it as the sin that it really is, as the thing that's, that's preventing me from having right rest and revival and renewal in you. You know, it's scary to do that. It's scary to have your hidden sins exposed and revealed. But you know what? Even more so, it's very freeing. It's incredibly freeing. Why? Because in exposing my sin and having my sin revealed, I can freely repent. And when, when I repent, what does God do? He declares me innocent. He forgives me. Do you see that there at the end of verse 12? That I should be blameless and innocent of great transgression when you, when, you, when you help me to discern these things and you keep me from them. So there's this one thing, hidden sins, and I want, I want God to reveal those things to me this summer. Are there things I'm just not aware of is it, am I running in a pool of jello right now? And I'm, I think I'm free, but I'm not. I'm just bogged down because I don't see it. God, bring me rest. Bring me revival and renewal in, in revealing my hidden sins. And, and then there's another way of sinning that, that I, along with David, hope to be rooted out. And it's presumptuous sins. You see that in verse 13 again? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So here David sees a difference between, on the one hand, sins that we commit because they're unknown to us, and on the other hand, sins that we commit because we just sort of presume it's not a big deal. The point is not that there's a special category of sins here, not some extra bad sins per se. The point is that there's this special category of sinning Namely, sinning in an arrogant defiance. This known commandment that I'm just saying, no, I'm not going to submit myself to that. It's not so much that, that what you do that, that puts sinning in this category, it's whether you do it with the spirit of defiance. If you do it with this sort of rebellion in your heart. And that's what David here is calling presumptuous sins. They're fully intentional. They're sins that we commit with our eyes wide open and with a heart that says, God, I know this is wrong. I know this is harmful, but I just don't care. I don't care what you think. I'm just going to do it anyway. Those are idolatries. That's what he's talking about here. Idolatries that just have a grip on our hearts. And you know what? I have them. And you do too. You do too. That's why David here says this prayer that's, that's bold and even a little bit risky. He says, let them not have dominion over me. Why do you say that's risky? Well, I say it's risky not because there's any risk in asking God to forgive us. He will. 
He'll bring healing, right? That's what he says there at the end, that, that we will be declared innocent of great transgression. We will be found blameless. That's not why it's risky. It's risky in that it requires us then, before that happens, to undergo willingly surgery, right? Surgery to untangle the grip of these idols in our hearts. And that kind of surgery is and will be painful. If there's a sin that I'm committing as a believer in Christ that I'm willingly committing, I know that I'm doing it. If my heart is rebellious enough to say, God, I know you say this is wrong, but I don't care, then that's a, that's a, that's a sin that, that I love. I love too much. And so for God to remove that, it's going to tear at the wicked part of my heart as he roots it out. But here's the thing, if we truly desire rest and we truly desire recovery, it's a necessary step. And David knows that here too. I want that for me this summer. I'll be honest, I'm not even sure I know. I think for me there may be a combination of hidden sins and presumptuous sins because I'm not even sure I know what those idols are, but I want to. I want God to reveal it to me. I want God to do surgery on me and I want it for you too. I want it for you too. So I pray the Lord will answer this prayer in my life and in your life and I want to encourage you to pray that prayer too. Rest. Revival. Renewal. Looking up. Looking down. Looking in. And finally, he, he, he ends the, the psalm with verse 14. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's a rest, fourthly, that comes from redemption. There's a rest that comes from redemption is, is, that's actually not even said correctly. That's where rest comes from, ultimately. Redemption. Look, if, if, I, if I succeed in truly beholding the glory of God in his creation, if I succeed in, 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 in obtaining and understanding the righteousness of God in his word and the cleansing power of God in exposing my sin, you know what I will inevitably be brought? I will inevitably be brought to a place of worship and obedience that's grounded in the gospel. Grounded in the gospel. Listen to Bloom again. I quoted him earlier. He says, When David looked up at the heavens, he didn't know what we know. The unfathomable extent and scope of the universe and when he asked, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He didn't know what we now know. The unfathomable extent and scope of God's care for us in what? In sending the incarnate Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. That's where rest is found. When I'm brought to a point of, of just kneeling before the cross of Christ and knowing that here's how God has revealed his glory to me. 
Here's how God has cared for me. Here's how God has powerfully spoken to me. Here's how God has rooted out my sin and forgiven it. It's all by listening to and looking to his son who was crucified and risen on my behalf, who bears my sins, who redeems me so that I can be restored and revived and find rest. That's my sabbatical plan. Rest and renewal as I connect, as I reconnect with God in creation, in his word, and in the purification of my heart for his glory. That it would lead me to a place of worship at the foot of the cross where I know I've been redeemed by the Savior. And in that that renewed knowledge, in that revived spirit, that I would be remade into a new man with a new vision and a new joy and a new energy as I continue to rest in him, even as I'm active, not passive, in life and ministry. That's my sabbatical plan. And I'm going to be praying the same thing for you. I will. That God will give you that in whatever way the Lord decides to grant it in your lives, both individually and collectively as a church over this summer. Again, I know it's not possible for all of you to get away for three months like I'm going to be able to do. And I I want you to know, by the way, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that you love me and my family enough to make it possible, not just possible, but to encourage us to do it, to get away. But I want you to know that, that as I go, you're in good hands. Pastor Andy is such a godly and gifted man, and he loves you, and I know he's looking forward to leading this summer, and I know that his leadership will blossom for your benefit this summer. And God has provided us with with a great staff. He's provided us with some tremendous interns this summer and different volunteers who've already stepped up to lead some of the ministries here. And here's the thing. You are, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you are the best little church that I know of. You're the best little church that I know of. The Spirit has blessed us with so many of his gifts, with so much love and fellowship, so much compassion to meet one another's needs. That knowledge comforts me as I know it's going to be a great summer here at Edgewater. And that's what I'll be praying for you. And again, I, I, just, I ask you to pray for my, my family. Would you pray that, that this sabbatical time will bear much fruit, that I really will come back renewed and refreshed and ready, ready to lead, ready to lead us into the future as a man who's been rekindled by the, the, the spiritual fire of the Lord. I'm looking forward to that. You know, it's, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since God called me to be your pastor. 10 years. It, in some ways, it feels like a blink. In other ways, it feels like forever. But I, I know this. He's done so much in us, all of us, and through us over the last decade. And so what I'm praying is that, that this would be a, a, a good 
kind of transition point for me to, to get this rest and renewal that I can come back knowing that, that for whatever time he still has me here, he'll continue to grow me and my family as we point you to Jesus, to root you in the scriptures in ways that will forever leave a mark on this church and on this city for the glory of Christ. That's my prayer. I hope you'll join with me in praying that, and I look forward to seeing what God has for us in the days ahead. Edgewater, I love you all. I will miss you. I really do love you. And I'll see you in three months.